Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Welcome to CT Church this morning. Good to be here. Good to see all of you. Uh, I want to begin this morning a, a two-part series that I... I, I I like to do this, uh, speak on this subject, uh, the first part of the year, and about every other year I average, because even though we've heard the topic preached on many, many times, it's just something that we all need to keep in the forefront of our thoughts, because it's something that we all struggle with. And I, I entitled this sermon, Fatal Attractions, The Seduction of Stuff. The mo- this sermon has nothing to do with the movie Fatal Attraction. I've never seen that movie, but I, under- I know the main point of that movie is that sex outside of marriage can lead to death. <laughs> I know that would be absolutely true around my house. <laughs> but uh, this morning, the point I want to make is that there is a There's a lot of things in this world that are almost as enticing and seductive to us as even sexual sin. And what I'm talking about is stuff. That would include things like money, power, fame, commodities, materialistic stuff, just all the stuff that is available to us today that tries to seduce us. We must have this. It's different for everyone's got everybody's got their own stuff, right? Everyone's got their own ideas of the stuff they'd like to have. And so this morning, I want to begin by reading this portion of scripture, this short story out of First Chronicles chapter nine. King David has determined in his heart that he's going to build a great temple unto the Lord for all of the people to come and worship God in. And he has all the desire, and he's got a lot of stuff, but he needs some more stuff to get the job done. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities." Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now... Who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. 
they gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Then I jumping down to verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given only we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen the joy, how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. So this morning, in this discussion about stuff, we see stuff, we want stuff, we buy stuff, we insure stuff. We compare our stuff to other people's stuff, don't we? The Bible has got so much to say about stuff, the people who own it, and what our perspective towards that stuff ought to be. Because stuff has a way of grabbing our hearts. It can have a very seductive lure in our life. We see it as parents, we see it very, very early on in life. When Humans reach about the age of two. They very quickly develop like two favorite words. The first one they develop usually is no. No. What's the second one? Oh, you've raised some kids. Mine, 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 mine. Oh, they love that word, don't they? Now, you need to think about this. To us as adults, it should seem just completely ironic that a two-year-old would seemingly have this concept of mine, that something is actually theirs. Because in reality, a two-year-old, they haven't earned a thing in life, right? Anything they have, any stuff they have is stuff that was given to them, right? And at this point, they can't even take very good care of their stuff. They say it's their stuff. We have to take care of it for them, right? And as a parent, we know that any of their stuff at any time can be taken away from them. We know that. We do it sometimes, right? Because the fact is, their stuff is not really theirs at all, is it? It's an illusion that they have. And the thing about that illusion, it's a very, very powerful one. And the older we get... And the more stuff that we get, the illusion can get stronger and stronger in our life. Now, if there's anybody here, you think you don't have a lot of stuff, 
Go home this afternoon and put it all in boxes. You'll realize how much stuff you've got, right? When Janet and I moved uh, several years back, it took us a few months to get all the boxes that were in the garage unpacked and you know, figure out what to do with. And that's the way it kind of happens in life, right? Especially after 40 years of marriage, your stuff just seems to proliferate. You don't realize how much stuff you have till it's time to box it up and move. And then you're just flabbergasted, right? You get a house and, you know, you need stuff to put in it. After a while in life, you realize there's not enough room for all your stuff. You got to get a bigger house. The house we bought was actually a little smaller than the house we previously had, and that's when the real trouble starts. Because now you got to get rid of some stuff. And, you know, it's hard to decide what stuff to get rid of. Most people, we prefer accumulating stuff, not giving rid of our stuff. But usually at some point in our old age, we realize that, no, we really need to downsize. And so we can finally decide to thin out some stuff. But it's a lifelong process. I've seen this show several times on the Travel Channel, this show about the Hearst Castle. Anybody ever visited the Hearst Castle? Well, it's about a half dozen of you. William Randolph Hearst, he built this castle for, him, for, for himself to live in. It's over out in California. The place is absolutely gigantic. Let's look at some of these pictures. Go through there. We got... There are several, several, many, many, it says 3,500-year-old Egyptian statues in this, her, in this castle out around the pool. There's a these medieval tapestries, hundreds and hundreds of years old. There's uh, gobs of them. You'd think with all that money, you could buy new stuff. But it's just loaded. This castle is loaded with the priceless art and artifacts from all over the world. William Randolph Hearst, he built this house to hold all of his stuff. In fact, he had so much stuff, he needed 72,000 square feet to hold it all. 72,000 square feet. This guy collected stuff for 88 years. And then you know what he up and did? He died. It's pretty short-sighted of him, wouldn't you say? After going to all that effort and expense, and now today, people buy, oh, by the droves, by the thousands, they they buy a ticket to take a tour through that house and they get in there and they look around and they say, boy, oh boy, he sure did have a lot of stuff. That's what people do. They go through life, they get a lot of stuff and then they die. And what happens then? The kids will argue over who's getting what. That's why several years ago, I decided to cancel all of my life insurance because when I die, I want everyone to be sad. It's an old bit, but it still amuses me. <laughs> so this is how it works. People die, and the people who have not died, they are the pre-dead people. Because in fact, there are two types of people in this world. There are the dead and the pre-dead. 
Two types. So the pre-dead people, they go over to the dead person's house. They go through all the stuff. They try to decide what stuff they want to take back to their house. That's how it happens. All of us, we die. Our stuff is going to go to somebody else. And this just goes down from generation to generation. People come and people go, right? Nations go to war over stuff. Families are split apart over stuff. Friendships are severed over it. Success and identities are oftentimes measured by it. And people can spend their entire lifetime consumed with stuff, worrying about stuff. I don't know if I have enough stuff. I could really use some more stuff. What I need is better stuff. If I could just have their stuff, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Husbands and wives argue about stuff more than anything else. Prisons are full of people who are obsessed with acquiring stuff. And even though the, even the assemblies of God, when we go as ministers, when we take their Bible training, well, we're taught about homiletics, apologetics, eschatology, hermeneutics, fall of man, redemption of man, end-time prophecy, not one course about stuff. You learn that on your own. And Jesus himself, the greatest teacher who ever lived, nobody taught like Jesus taught. Apart from the kingdom of God, he spent more time teaching about stuff than any other subject because he knew we'd all be have that temptation and the allure of stuff in this world. He fully understood the fatal attraction that it could have on the human heart and how it can directly tap into all of the big issues that we, that we face in life, like worry and fear, pride, envy, comparisons, our identity, importance, and success in life. So this morning, I want to focus uh, on this one very important question that is this. Just exactly whose stuff is it anyway? Is, this, is all this stuff mine, or is it in fact all God's? So let's go back to this story in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and let's look at a time when people uh, seem to be very freed up in, in terms of wanting and desiring stuff. These are a bunch of people that, man, were freed up in that it, as we read about it. David was the king of Israel, but he didn't start out that way, did he? He started out as a shepherd, which means at that point in his life, he didn't have hardly any stuff because shepherds were the poorest of the poor. We know he had a slingshot. We know he had a few sheep to watch. At some point, he had a harp. That's about it. But at this time of this story, he's king over Israel in an, an unprecedented time of prosperity. And so we know that right now, David had a lot of stuff. And one day, he got to thinking about how he lived in this incredible palace of marble and gold, but there wasn't even a, a nice place where people could go and worship God. You know, at that time, God's presence was represented by this large golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was outside in a tent 
that they referred to as the tabernacle. So one day, uh, apparently David's thinking about how he's living in this magnificent palace, but God's presence is outside in a box under a tent. So he gets this idea, what if I were to use all my stuff to serve and honor God? What if I was to build this temple where the people can go and and just say, wow, this is an incredible place that holds the presence of God? Not so that they would be impressed with any human being, but because they could just be reminded of the greatness and the power of God who provides all things for all people. So David presents this idea to his prophet Nathan, and Nathan, he thinks it's a good idea, but they go to prayer over this thing, and God says, no. He says, David, you will not build this house for me. He said, you've been a man of war much of your life. You've shed blood. You've led a violent life. I won't let you build the temple for me. But I like the idea. I like your heart. I like your attitude. So what I'll do is I'm going to allow your son Solomon, who has never been a man of war and shedding of blood, he can build the temple for me. So David left the means to start this project that he was never going to see completely finished, to build a temple that he would never actually worship in, but he's just excited that he's able to give all that he can give. He's so excited that he calls all of the people together here in verse 2. He says, With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of God gold, silver, bronze, and wood, alabaster, and marble. And then in verse 5, he issues that challenge to the people. Who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord, or who else is willing to give like this? Now, that's actually very unusual for the culture at that time because at that time, in David's time, kings normally didn't ask for anything, did they? Kings took what they felt they needed. They didn't ask anybody. Kings would just decide, look, these are my people, their stuff is my stuff, and I'm just going to take it, and that's that. But David doesn't take anything as a king He decides to ask because David understood that principle that it's only going to be meaningful in their lives if they choose to give it willingly, choose to give it with a joyful heart. It's all about the heart, really. Giving is all about the heart. Any kind of giving is a revelation of our heart, what's going on in our heart. Whether it's a loving heart, a giving heart, a generous heart, a stingy heart. I've heard people referred to down through the years, he's kind of a stingy Christian. When in fact, I I don't think that is possible. It's an oxymoron. A stingy, if we're truly Christians, we are not stingy people, we're generous people. There's no way you can be a stingy Christian or a hateful heart. Whatever the case is, our giving or our level of giving generously defines what's going on in our heart. So, God, so David asks the people, who among you is willing to give? And one by one, boy, those people started to stand up and say, I'll give, I'll give. Verse 6 says that before long, there was this 
explosion of generosity among the leaders. And in verse 9, it's, it said, The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. King David was overwhelmed with joy because the people had given willingly. You know, when it comes, Pastor Todd this morning, speaking on tithing, you know, I think one of the, the most common questions I've probably heard in 30-some years of ministry about tithing is, is this one. Do I have to tithe on my gross income or my net income? I, don't, I can't even tell you how many times people have asked me that question. Do I have to tithe on my gross or my net? And I won't get into how I answer that. I, I usually just say, well, personally, I choose to tithe on my net. It's the first fruit. But the problem with that question is that I think there, there's always an underlying question that prompts that question. It's a deeper question. It's kind of like we're saying, you know, explain to me exactly how little can I give without disobeying God? You know, how much of my stuff can I keep and, you know, not get in any trouble? What, in other words, what, could you explain to me, what is the very least I can do and still get through the pearly gates? That's kind of what that question smacks of, doesn't it? I tell you, men, I'll say this to you men, you leaders of your homes, I challenge you to apply that logic right there. What's the least I can do toward your next anniversary. You just sit your wife down and say, now honey, I got a question for you. Could you tell me what is the absolute least I can do or spend without you being upset? And just tell me, tell me how that goes for you. <laughs> but to answer the question as it pertains to the kingdom of God, what is the least we can do? The answer is 10%. 10% is not the maximum required for us. It's the least required for us. Only that which is above that first 10% is called giving. Really, technically, we're not giving until we've gone above the 10% because the 10%, God tells us, is not ours anyway. That 10% is his. It's already his. So we're not really giving at that point. We're just not stealing from him. If we're going to break this down to where the rubber meets the road. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, he talks about giving and he says, Give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a, a cheerful giver. That's what he loves. And that's what we see here this picture that we see with David and his people, they absolutely want to give, and the end result is that it just unleashes all this incredible joy in their life. It says the people rejoiced greatly that they were able to give. The reason for all that rejoicing was that from the king to the leaders to the people, all of a sudden, they all caught this revelation. They all under, began to understand the difference between stewardship and ownership. 
I'm going to say that again because it was so quiet in here. They began to realize the difference between stewardship and ownership. You know, as we live our lives here on planet Earth, none of us are really owners of anything. We are stewards of things. But it's so easy for us to cop that attitude. Oh, no, I'm the owner. All this stuff, this stuff is my stuff. You can't have my stuff. You can't have, it's my stuff. I own it. It's that illusion, that great illusion that creeps into our heart. We don't own anything. We're just stewards of stuff. God has simply entrusted you and me with some of his stuff. It's not our stuff. Somebody had it before and somebody will have it after us. For instance, here's a good example. Raise your hand if you have some cash in your purse or billfold right now. You have some cash. Let me ask you, that cash, did somebody mail that to you directly from the mint? Probably not. Probably somebody else had that cash before it ended up in your billfold, right? And who knows who's going to have that cash tomorrow? Probably not you. Somebody's going to get that cash. And it just cycles and cycles. So what we have in our pocket that we think is ours, well, I don't know how much it's yours. It's probably not going to be there a week from now. So how much is it really yours, right? But for a little while, we get to manage some of that money for God's sake. That's the reality. We get to manage some of this stuff that we're blessed to have in our life. But then David, make, he makes a great statement in verse 14. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? You know, for David, he was probably thinking, how did this happen? I was, I was just a poor shepherd. I was a soldier. I was also an adulterer and then a murderer. Who am I? that I could give into the kingdom of God like this. David was probably more amazed at himself than anybody else. He goes on to say, everything comes from you and we've only given what came from your hand. Boy, he's, he's grasped it, hasn't he? He goes on to say, he says, everything comes from you. We only have what has been given from your hand. It's kind of like, you know, as parents, when our children are little, at Christmas or birthdays, when you get a birthday present from one of your children, it's a gift from them paid for by you. That's how it works, right? A gift from them, but it was paid for by you. And it's a principle of giving that we're trying to train into our children, you know, uh, uh, but as an adult, you know, we, we know the truth is that you most likely paid for your own present. And David, he's got all this in perspective at this point. He's telling God that we've only given you what you've already given us. We don't need to get the big head. I mean, we're, we're able to give this because you gave it to us first. So... Keep in mind that this, that attitude was unheard of for kings 
Because most kings, they they had this attitude that said, the reason I'm king and I have all this stuff is because I'm, you know, so clever and I'm so talented and I I have a lot more drive and foresight than most people. And it's because I recognized opportunities in life and I worked harder than most people and educated myself and, you know, I, I deserve to be here. That's why I have all this stuff. That's how most kings thought. Aren't you glad we never think like those kings? But David, who as a young teenager, I mean, he'd had quite a life. He killed and decapitated this 10-foot giant. He led his armies into victory many times, and then he had risen to be king. And he says, God, this is all your kingdom. These are all your people, and all the stuff is yours. The only reason I have any amount of control over any of this is because you gave it to me. You allowed me to be the chief steward over all your stuff. You know, friends, this morning, you have to realize if if you're able to earn a living, it's because you have been given certain skills you know, or because you've given a, a, been given a level of intelligence that you're able to operate and use those skills and, and earn a living. And you need to praise and thank God for that. It's not because you're so smart or you're so great. He's the one who gave you every ability that you have in life. Is there anyone here today, before you were born, you signed up for all the different talents, and abilities that you currently have. No, they were just God-given, weren't they? It all came from God. You are who you are because of God. It's always so tempting to think, the reason I've got all this stuff is because I earned it and I deserve it. Which is a completely, it's that false illusion that we have. The truth is, there is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. There's no such thing, but people love to claim it, right? I'm a self-made man. I like the story about this CEO of a Fortune uh, 500 company. He and his wife, they pulled into this gas station to get gas to fill up their, you know, Mercedes or whatever they were driving. And this guy, uh, he goes in to pay for the gas, and when he comes out, he sees that his wife is having this conversation with, with one of the gas attendants. When he gets in the car, he asks, well, what were you, who is that? Who are you talking to? She says, oh, that's a guy I actually dated in high school. And the CEO, he, he started to feel a little smug. You know, He says, I'll bet you were thinking, man, am I glad I married a CEO instead of a gas station attendant. She said, well, no, actually, I was thinking, you know, I'll bet if I'd have married him, he'd be the CEO of a Fortune 5 company, and you'd probably be pumping gas. How many men will agree there's some truth in that right there? You know, if it weren't for our wives, who knows? You know, we might be in jail. Who knows where we'd be? Our wives keep us on that straight and narrow, right? They speak wisdom into our life when we're about to do something stupid. How many of you will admit that? Okay, the others, you just haven't come to that realization or you're just lying, you know, one of the two. (laughs) There's something about this 
seduction of stuff and its fatal attraction that can get a hold of us and make us think, well, you know, if I've got a lot of stuff, then I've obviously done something to deserve it. But we forget to think about, well, where did, where did I even get my ability to think and to reason, my ability to learn, my inner drive and my talents and abilities? Where did all that come from? Did I just generate it out of nothing or was it just given to me by God? And the latter is the truth, right? It was just given to you by God. We should rejoice over that. David was wise enough to realize the only reason I'm living in this palace, the only reason I'm wearing this crown, the only reason I have all this stuff is because of you, God. You alone have blessed me immeasurably, and I want to do everything I can to maximize my service in your kingdom. So let me drive home that point this morning. Are you doing all that you can to maximize your service in the kingdom of God by being a good steward over all the stuff that he's given you? Or are you trying to desperately hang on to it? You know, as your pastor, I every week I, I try to present a message that is worth listening to for everyone who's willing to get up out of bed and come to church voluntarily. I'm always amazed that all of you are sitting there. You just did that willingly. Nobody paid you to get up, get out of bed. You just got up and came to church. We don't pay you. In fact, we ask you for money. It's amazing that all you're sitting there. But we only ask because we want you to receive God's blessing in your life. The principle of giving is unchanging. We can't outgive God. His blessing just continues to flow into our life. It's ne I tell you, if you, have, if you don't tithe, have never tithed, you're afraid to tithe because you do the math and it's just not there, I'm telling you, we've all been there at different points in our life where it just didn't add up. But I, I can... I can testify today that if you'll just start doing it, you know, God's not, he's not blowing smoke in his word when he says, just test me and see what begins to happen. It's the only time in the entire Bible he says, test me. He says, test me. You may not even have faith that this is going to work, but he says, if you'll just be obedient to do it, I'm going to start to show you what I will do in your life how I'll bring blessing into your life. And then you'll be a believer on your own. Test me in it. So, you know, I, I, I try to have something worthwhile, a message to, to, to present every Sunday morning. And likewise, you should strive with excellence to do the very best job you can at whatever you do so that you can help serve in the kingdom of God by supporting things of God and that others will, know to come, will come to know God as their personal Lord and Savior. We should all be striving to perform at our highest level. Whatever it is that we do day in and day out in order to maximize our potential in the kingdom of God. You know, if, if, if CT Church was still uh, the size it was when Pastor and Mrs. Brothers first 
boy took that huge step of faith and they, they pioneered this church out of the uh, uh, little clubhouse over here in Valencia neighborhood. Had about 30 or 40 people. You know, we, if we were still 30 or 40 people, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, sponsor every month about 60 missionaries. You know, we couldn't do a lot of the things that we do, but by people all working together down through the years, the church has grown, we're able to reach and affect more people for the kingdom. And as we continue to grow our, our outreach, our effort will become greater as well, as long as people understand that their stuff is really not theirs. It's all God's, and He just expects us to be good managers, good stewards of the stuff he's allowed us to have. Amen? You know, uh, in the announcement, you heard that uh, in a few weeks, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of Calvary Temple. Four, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Some of you were uh, attending the church when the church was in, just in the youth building. This building didn't even exist. Let me see your hands if you were there when the church was back in the youth building. Canodles, Bill, and man, that, there's, just a, there's just a very, very scant few that have been here that long that have seen the progressive growth of Calvary Temple, all stemming from that leap of faith that Pastor and Mrs. Brothers took. They gave, man, they gave it all. They were pastoring a you know, very successful church, and they moved out here where there wasn't much of anything out here. So they realized, you know, my stuff isn't my stuff anyway. We're going to do whatever we can to maximize the kingdom of God. And Pastor Brothers, he's always in second service. But, you know, this morning, I, I, I want to just kind of honor him and for, for just the, the faith that he had and the great steward that he's been all of these years with the stuff that God allowed him to have. It's really amazing. You know, I, I shared uh, at, our, at our New Year's Eve service, you know, some of the vision for Calvary Temple. Wouldn't it be fantastic if just miraculously in, this, in our 40th year, if we could pay off the Family Life Center and be debt-free? Can you imagine the things we could do for the kingdom? We only owe about $900,000. Who wants to write a check this morning? But, you know, all of us working together, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. You know, they thought building the temple with all the gold and all the silver and all the fine jewels that it took, you know, that seemed like a beyond the realm of possibility, but they knocked it out in fine fashion. Will you guys pray with me? Keep that as a matter of prayer uh, that in this 40th year that we could just miraculously pay off the Family Life Center. That would be oh, an incredible blessing and allow us to be even more effective in the kingdom of God. Amen? I, that's not even in my notes. I threw it in there for free. Who's glad you came to church this morning? So, as we continue to grow, our outreach is going to become greater. But we all have to understand our stuff is not our stuff. It's all God's stuff. We're just managing it. And here's one thing about being a steward that a lot of people don't like to think about, and that is this. One day, we're all going to have to give an account to God for all the stuff he's given us. 
One day, Jesus told his disciples to go to a, this is a great story. Jesus told uh, two of his disciples, go to this certain home where you're going to find this donkey tied up outside. He didn't even say knock on the door and let the guy know what's going on. He just said, go to this house where you'll find this donkey tied up outside. Untie the donkey and just bring it to me because I need it. And they just said, okay. And so they went and did it. And he told them, if the, if the owner asks, what are you doing? He said, just tell them the master needs it. Now, that would, you know, let's, let's fast forward a couple thousand years. And let's say I do something like it. Let's say, I say, Pastor Todd, I need you to go down here to the H-E-B parking lot. There's a blue Toyota. You're going to find it with the keys in it. I'd like you to just get in that car and bring it to me. I could really use that car. And so, Pastor Todd, well, he would say, yes, Pastor Doug, I'll do that for you, wouldn't you, Pastor Todd? Yeah. And so he goes down there, he jumps in that car, and, and can you imagine, you know, I, I say, just bring it to me, even if you see the owner running out of H-E-B, waving a gun and screaming obscenities, you just bring me that, gun, that car because I need it. That's quite a story, isn't it? In this case, it was a donkey, but hey, that's the same as a car today. It's like you're stealing somebody's car and you didn't even ask for it, but you just tell them the Lord needs it. But in this, in this what's, what's amazing about this story, one, the disciples just voluntarily said, yeah, I'll do that. Boy, they were willing to be completely obedient. And the second amazing thing is that God knew there wasn't going to be a problem because it says he had already prepared the heart of the owner. And so when they told him it was for the master, the owner said, oh, well, all right then. It's amazing how when we put our faith completely in God, the things that we fear turn out to be nothing. If we really put our faith and our trust and we are obedient to what we know God is directing us to do, a lot of times we live in fear of that, but we don't have to because if it's God's will, he's already got this planned out. You're going to be okay, in other words. Just be faithful. You know, how many of us are willing to just part with our stuff as soon as we know the kingdom is in need? So often when God asks us adults for something, that he's given us in the first place, he gets that very mature answer. No, mine, mine, mine. Very mature, right? Same response we get from two-year-olds. God gets from us as adults often. I want you to do this. Oh, no, I want you to give this. No, that's mine. It's so easy to get caught up in the illusion, isn't it? I keep using that word a lot in this message because it's the perfect word. The illusion that all of this stuff is ours. You know, one, a, a great sign uh, that the Spirit of God is being poured out on a community of people is that the people move from an attitude of owner to an attitude of steward. From this is mine to this is all God's. We need to make a conscious effort to rid our lives of anything that creates these addictions inside of us. Learn to enjoy these things in life without taking ownership of them. Because in fact, you own nothing.
You've got it on borrowed time, right? Another thing we should do as stewards of God's stuff is to learn to live within our means. I kind of throw this part in for free. Take a real strong look at all of those things, all, all those buy now, pay later deals you hear about because you always end up paying a lot later than you thought. Who's ever figured that one out? I'm the only one? Yeah, uh-huh. We were all young at one time and bid on those things, right? And hopefully, we, as you grow older, you mature and say, well, you know, this is a buy now, pay later thing. is not all it's cut out to be. Satan's greatest tool, especially in this day and age, in our society, I think one of the greatest tools that he has for keeping you or me from funding the kingdom of God is to keep people in debt. It is a bondage. It keeps you from being able to give generously because you've already spent money before you ever had it. Learn to shun anything that keeps you from seeking the kingdom of God. That might be stuff that you already have. Maybe you've got stuff that is keeping you from really earnestly seeking and being generous within the kingdom of God. If that's the case, get rid of it. It's hurting you, not helping you. It's holding you back from incredible joy and blessing in your life. But see, we get it in our head. No, that's my joy and my blessing, my stuff. No, it can get to the point where it's robbing you of joy and blessing. That's what we have to realize. You know, get rid of it if it's hindering, whether it's a just, you know, some legitimate thing. The thing itself may not be sinful in any way. It's just, but it's holding you back from accomplishing what God wants to do in your life. Uh, it's amazing how a career or money or status or, you know, seemingly financial security can cause us to lose our focus on on the fact that God is first and everything else is secondary. You know, I, I've mentioned many times that around Christmas time, Janet and I, we, we love to watch It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And uh, I like the part where there's the run on the bank and he has to go in there and try to calm every down, everybody down. They all want their money. You know, one guy says, you know, I, 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 need, I need, you know, I need $400 right now. You've got it here. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart, well, 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 well now, Bob, your, your money's not here. Your, your, your money's at Jim's house. And there was, I saw a cartoon one time, they were doing a satire on that. And Jimmy Stewart say, your, Bob, your money's not here, your, your money's at Bob's house. And Jim turns to Bob, he says, what's my money doing at your house? Pow, and he smacks him in the mouth. It was, it's kind of funny because you're not expecting it. But anyway, he didn't quite get what, the, what he was trying to explain. But I love that scene at the end, at the end where, you know, George is in all his trouble. All of his friends, all the people in town, they all come piling into his house. And they're all just, they can't wait to give their money to help their friend in need. And, you know, one guy offers his watch. And even the people that ended up being there to arrest him, well, they get in this spirit of giving and they give some of their own money. You've all seen this movie, right? It's this giving frenzy that it, it becomes, and that, that is kind of the scene that David saw when he saw the people just begin to give toward the construction of God's temple. I mean, he just, he witnessed this frenzy of generosity. Man, that'd be, that's great to experience in the kingdom of God, isn't it? A frenzy of generosity.
If we had a frenzy of generosity, we could, we could pay that thing off this year, I guarantee you. We could do more for missions than we've ever done in any other year. I tell you, that's, you know, in my time of prayer, I'm going to make that one of my weekly prayer points that we just all, that includes me. I, I, I don't ask, I never ask anybody to do something I'm not willing to do. So I'm saying all of us that we just catch a frenzy of generosity and see what God begins to do in our life, in our church, and in our community. It's amazing. We can't outgive him. In verse 18, David sums it all up. He says, Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. You know, he's witnessing this frenzy of generosity, and he realizes, let's not just make this uh, something that was caught up in emotion. Let's keep this frenzy of generosity a part of our life. Let it become a lifestyle. He says, and therefore keep their hearts loyal to you. You know, David knew how easy it was for people to just kind of slip back into their old habit of, boy, hanging on to everything they've got. Mine, mine, mine. Even though it's in reality, it's not ours. So his prayer was for the people to maintain this attitude of giving that they had just discovered and was bringing them so much joy. And the real truth is that we can't make our hearts generous like that on our own. None of us are going to experience this frenzy of generosity just in and of ourselves. It takes a, a revelation of Jesus in our life to create that heart of generosity. We have to experience the reality of God in our life to become really generous people of generosity because it doesn't come naturally to any of us. Generosity doesn't come naturally. It has to be developed in our life. That's why two-year-olds have a very, very low level of generosity. Everything mine, mine, mine. Why? Because they haven't had time to develop this heart of generosity in their life, this concept. So I just close today by saying this. There's, there's nothing wrong with stuff as long as we learn to control it rather than allowing stuff to control us. You know, don't allow it to seduce you into compromising your faith in any way or your ability to give generously into the kingdom of God. It's all given by Him, amen? The greatest thing that we can give God is our heart, our life, and our spirit of generosity, our tithing, our giving. And I tell you, if you will do that, He promises to meet all of our needs with abundance. Man, so oftentimes in my life I've experienced asking God to help me with a need, and man, He, he rarely just meets the need. So often, He meets it abundantly. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.